Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi there, it's Ross. On The Argument, we want to hear everyone's perspective, and that includes you. Whether you're a longtime listener or a new one, we're asking you to fill out a survey about how you listen to this show and to others at nytimes.com backslash the argument survey. We want to keep improving, and we can't do that without hearing from you. Again, that's nytimes.com backslash the argument survey. And thank you in advance. Now, on to this week's show. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthit. And this is The Argument. Today, what went wrong with polls in the 2020 election? And can we ever trust the polling industry again? And then, Donald Trump still hasn't conceded. What does that mean for the long 68 days until the inauguration? Joe Biden is the president-elect of the United States, but not by the margin that lots of people expected, and not with the coattails that Democrats had hoped for. So we have to ask, what were all those pre-election polls with wide 8 and 9 and 10-point margins really capturing? What happened with polling in 2020? To answer our queries, or at least to start, we've brought on the Times polling expert extraordinaire, Nate Cohn, whose Twitter feed you may have been furiously refreshing, as I was, all election week. Nate covers polling, elections, and demographics for the upshot at the Times. Nate, welcome to The Argument. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, um, even if, you know, we're going to we're going to give you a terribly hard time about the polls. Um, so well, the polls but, aren't Nate's. The polls aren't either of the Nate's fault. Right. I mean, their model didn't fail. It was the poll at the underlying polling failed or. Yes. Although the Times itself, we have our own polls. OK, fine, um, fair enough. so okay. so in some sense, we failed corporately. But so so, Nate, you wrote a piece saying that the predictions for this year's election were even worse than 2016. So in spite of all the talk about, you know, how we were going to correct for 2016's errors, we ended up doing even worse. And you've also offered several provisional theories about why. Um, so why don't we start with you running through some of those theories for us? I think that if I may just slightly revise your characterization of what I said yesterday. Please, please do. I think that the polling error this time, just in terms of the difference between the actual results and what the pre-election polls found, is almost exactly identical to the miss in 2016. But given that pollsters took a number of steps that we know improved the president's standing in those surveys— the polling miss is, to my mind, a deeper and more significant miss than the one in 2016. And so I think we have to ask, why did the underlying data, the responses that we get to these surveys, get so much worse over the last four years that it canceled out whatever gains pollsters made by adjusting their samples in ways that led to a more conservative electorate? And I think there are four basic possibilities. One is that Trump supporters became less likely to respond to surveys controlling for their demographic characteristics. The president attacked the, uh, the media and the polling industry for years. The 2016 election result itself could have diminished trust in surveys. And all of this might have led 
to a decrease in the propensity for a Republican-leading voters to participate in the polls. A second possibility is sort of the flip side of that, that maybe progressives became more likely to respond to polls. We saw this huge uptick in political participation on the left over the last few years, the millions of dollars going to special elections and long-shot candidates. Those same people who started donating for the first time may have also started taking polls for the first time. A third possibility is turnout. The turnout in this election was way up. I think that most polls found that that increase in turnout would be to the benefit of the Democrats and Joe Biden because non-voters in 2016 were disproportionately Democratic. I think it is quite possible that in the final account, we'll find that that was not true, that a disproportionate number of the new voters in this election were Republicans or Republican-leaning voters who came out to back the president's re-election. And I don't think that would, if that's true, and we'll, unlike some of the other theories, that will be very easy to validate, that would not have been reflected by the pre-election polling this year. And I think the final possibility, which I think is the most interesting one in, in some important ways, uh, is the possibility that coronavirus hurt the polls. See, this idea is primarily from a guy named David Shore, who gained some notoriety this year because he was uh, unceremoniously uh, fired or whatever happened to him at Civis Analytics. And he, he believes that he has evidence that when the coronavirus hit and Democrats took the threat from the coronavirus more seriously than Republicans, or at least they were likelier to stay home and social distance than Republicans and Republican-leaning voters and the supporters of the president, that that meant that their likelihood to respond to surveys increased uh, because now they were at home with nothing to do while many Republican-leaning voters went along with their lives. And I do think there's some elegance to that theory because many of the polls that were conducted before coronavirus came very close to what the final results were in this election. Um, we also know that there were studies throughout the election which found Joe Biden doing better in coronavirus hotspots. That absolutely did not prove to be true on election day. To take Wisconsin as the most obvious example, number one coronavirus hotspot of any of the battleground states, also the place where the polls were wrong by the most, and also the rare state where Joe Biden was increasing in the polls heading into the election, which at least, you know, it doesn't prove anything, but it is all, all of what I just described is consistent um, with the possibility that there was some effect from coronavirus here. I also think it's possible that in the end, all of these various theories will work together in some combination of ways to add up to the polling miss. Or it's possible that we'll find that all of this is just theorizing with no serious evidence and that we'll be left without explanation. Um, or we'll find that one is the complete explanation. I just don't know at this point. Can we talk about three for a minute? I mean, and why it is that you think that that one we can kind of definitively either validate or discount? I mean, that makes sense to me someone who knows nothing about polling, just in the fact that you saw all so many of these Republicans running ahead of Donald Trump, right? So that there was this sort of red wave of Trump voters. And then you had a bunch of Republicans who also got whatever was the, the narrow never Trump vote, right? Which is right. why you would see, you know, a kind of a David Perdue or many of these Republican candidates running ahead of Trump's margin, even as Trump's margin was so much higher than the polls had led us to expect. So uh, we'll be able to validate exactly who voted in this election because most states, um, well, every state, in fact, has a, a database of people who are registered to vote and they publish these voter registration files, as we call them, and it will, and on those files, they will indicate who voted in this election and who didn't. And that will be used in a number of ways. One, in the states with party registration, like a Pennsylvania or a Florida, will be able to say this was an electorate where registered Republicans outnumbered Democrats by two points in Florida. 
A second thing we'll be able to do with that data is we'll be able to append it back to the polls that were conducted before the election. Many surveys, including all of the surveys that were sponsored by the Times, are conducted off of these voter registration files where we you know, literally pick people off the list and we call people off this same list. So after the election, we'll know which of our poll respondents actually voted. And we'll be able to say, well, turned out that of that while we talked to a lot of non-voters in 2016, and while that group of non-voters was Democratic, that the ones who showed up were Republicans. They That's not how it looked to us before the election, because the Democrats said they were going to vote, but they didn't follow through. Um, or maybe it will prove to be the opposite, where a bunch of Republicans who weren't sure that they were going to vote ultimately showed up. But either way, this is this is a, this is a question that we'll be able to resolve with a lot of precision and and potentially soon. I'm interested in number four for a minute because I remember on this show itself talking about some of the polling that the Times, uh, the Times Siena polls did during the Democratic primaries, and there was this you know this moment when Elizabeth Warren was you know leading or close to leading in the Democratic primary polls. And then we came out, I think it was a poll of the swing states, the Midwestern swing states that compared how Biden performed to how Bernie performed and how Warren performed. And Biden clearly had an advantage that looked a lot like the advantage that he ended up with last Tuesday. Um, and this was this weird I, moment in the Democratic primary where it almost felt like Times polls were sort of intervening in the race and signaling to Sanders supporters, but maybe especially Warren supporters to freak out about their candidate's electability or something. And then we all forgot about it because the shape of the race changed so much. But under the COVID theory, this was an insanely stable race, right? By right. that under under that theory. If if theory number four is right, COVID changed the polls, not the race. And I do think it's a very significant question because it doesn't just affect what we think about the horse race. It has a lot of um, effect for the way we think about the arc of the Trump presidency and his handling of the coronavirus and what proportion of the American electorate is sympathetic to a more conservative approach to the issue. And if it turned out that large swaths of the electorate are you know, not inclined to support social distancing to the extent that the poll suggested, that would be very important for understanding the capacity of our society to implement those measures going forward. I suspect some of our listeners know about the challenges to polling these days in great detail, but others may not. Can you just tell us how hard it is to get someone to pick up the phone right now? Like, how many people do you have to call to get a polling respondent? We, I mean, we usually call about 100 telephone numbers before we get a polling respondent. Now, granted, we work really hard to reach the people who are hardest to reach. So there are other pollsters who don't go through that work, and they as a consequence, have somewhat better luck in getting respondents. They just collect more people. They have more people who are older as a result or something like that. A different way of thinking about it is that if you were an interviewer at one of our call centers that you know works for Time Siena Polling, you would go a whole hour dialing phone numbers and you would complete about one interview uh, during that time. And you'd, you know, that interview might last 10 minutes and you'd spend the next 50 minutes dialing numbers to with no success. And this is apart from all of the challenges of diminishing social trust, conservatives not wanting to talk to pollsters, like the change in how people pick up the phone, right, is like the fun, the fundamental challenge for the polling industry over the last 10 or 15 years. Or is that, or is that overstated, do you think? Well, I think it's certainly true from a cost standpoint, right? I mean, the more phone numbers you have to dial, the more hours you need to pay this poor interviewer 
for before you've collected one poll. So it's had a huge effect on the costs of polling. There is less evidence that it's had a huge effect on the accuracy of polls. We're starting to get close to the point where I think maybe we can raise the possibility that it has had an effect on the accuracy of polls. To me, the polling error in 2020 betrays a pretty fundamental mismeasurement of white voters without a college degree. Well, in 2016, there just weren't enough of those voters. In 2020, mm-hmm. these voters were just mismeasured. I mean, the, yeah. they told a story that, about what happened uh, for white working class voters in this election that wasn't true. The polls said that they swung back towards Biden after swinging towards Trump in 2016. It just didn't happen. And that's a more fundamental failing than I think we've had in recent elections. Can you talk about the social trust piece of this and sort of the ways that education waiting, I guess, was maybe supposed to correct for that, but in the end didn't correct for that? We have known for a very long time that people with a college degree and people who have a higher rate of turning out in elections are much likelier to take political polls um, than those who are not. And that makes sense. We know that college graduates are politically engaged. They subscribe to the New York Times. They donate to political campaigns, they're listening to this podcast, the sort of people who want to do these sort of things may also be likelier to take a poll. Uh, In 2016, that was a problem for the political polling industry for the first time, because Donald Trump did much better among people who did not have a college degree than those who did. And that didn't used to be true. I mean, you can go back and look at the 2012 exit polls or 2008, whatever you want. Barack Obama and Mitt Romney both did about the same among voters with a college degree. So this dimension of non-response to political surveys, while true for a long time, did not bias political surveys. Now, in this election, we have an additional problem, which is that even though the polls properly represented um, the proportion of the electorate that didn't have a college degree, the people who picked up the phone who did not have a college degree were less representative of that demographic group than they had been before. Um, One of many theories for why that could be true is something like social trust. Um, I have to say that I think the evidence on this is pretty mixed. Um, But it is one possible explanation for why a certain kind of conservative voter who is distrustful of their neighbors and distrustful of society and distrustful of institutions would be less likely to take a telephone survey than a liberal who still has sort of idealistic um, West Wing style visions of the way our government works or the way our society works. I mean, as the, you know, as maybe not quite a West Wing style liberal, but, you know, some somewhere in that spectrum. Uh Um, To me, it's sort of psychologically opaque why if you are part of a social movement that spends a ton of time complaining about polls, saying that the polls are voter suppression because they don't adequately represent your share of um, the populace, you know, kind of enthralled to this demagogue who's constantly saying the polls are wrong, the polls are underestimating us, why you wouldn't take your opportunity to put your finger on them in your own direction. Um, so one, I think you can imagine that the distrust is so deep that you worry that your response is being, you know, manipulated, or you think that, you you know, you can't trust the survey to even do a good job of doing justice to your side. That's one possibility. I think another possibility is to sort of reframe it a bit. And it's a little bit of a, to think of all the, the Trump supporters that have taken some version of, I don't care about your feelings or, you know, that sort of, Mm -hmm. that sort of attitude where it's like, I don't care about you. I think that if to the extent that you think that the propensity to uh, volunteer or to donate some of your time to, you know, a different cause is a relevant predictor of whether you want to take a survey, that it's possible that, you know, the Trump presidency is sort of, we don't want to spend too much time caring about other people sort of attitude. 
um, could have an effect on the kinds of people that are likely to respond to surveys. And then, the, you know, the final thing I would say is that I think that there are a lot of people, perhaps especially in rural America, um, who sort of would like to be left alone in a fundamental way and just don't trust anything. I, you know, one thing that I've taken note of this year, and I would like to, I may write this up myself at some point, but I would rather someone else do it because I'm not an expert on this. But if you, the, the, the Census Bureau publishes charts, maps and, and that show in, in fine detail who has taken the census and who has not. And the census non-response rates in rural America, and in particularly in many of the sort of less educated outlying parts of rural America where the president has made his largest gains over the last eight years, I, the census non-response rates there are, are really high, and they're much higher than they are elsewhere. Um, and did people take that as an early warning? I mean, if that was if that was something that pollsters knew about? Um, I don't think it's something that pollsters knew about. Um, I think that there are a handful of people who had been taking note of this during the year. I did take note of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a question about whether we should do anything about it. You know, there are, census non-response rates are kind of challenging. I mean, a lot of these places are in population decline. You know, it's possible that a lot of these you know, people are not responding to the service because they're not there anymore. Um, and that, you know, it's just, it's not entirely obvious what you're supposed to do with some of the information. But I do think that it, it was certainly a signal that's consistent with the possibility. This, is, this represents a broader withdrawal from, you know, engaging with whether it's strangers or whether it's the government um, or something else that would, would be very difficult for for pollsters to overcome if it's true. Nate, in the last five minutes we have you, I want to you know lift up to the well. There's sort of there's sort of two questions. The, the macro level question is: Will the country ever trust polls again? Um, there's also the more specific question of: Will people in our profession trust polls again? Because of course we work with polls not just in presidential elections, but you know so much of what. All of us as columnists and journalists do depends on public opinion surveys on a lot of other questions. But what do you think the best case scenario is for the polling industry sort of regaining public trust after not just sort of missing, but missing in the same direction in these incredibly high profile and fraught elections? I don't think that the polling industry will find it's very easy to earn back Um the the trust of either the media or um, the electorate. I do think that it's important to keep in mind there are a range of possibilities for just how bad polling is. To take one example, we know polls are imprecise. They've never been perfect. Earlier in the cycle, I thought that polling was very illuminating on the Democratic primary. Joe Biden's strength and his resiliency, despite all of the Twitter chat about his vulnerabilities on progressive issues. I think that was an important lesson for decision makers in the media and elected officials to fully internalize. And I think it would have been very difficult to pull off without polling. Then there's another possibility, which is that the polls are so inaccurate so as to be useless. I'm not sure whether I would go that far when I look at the balance of public polling. I do think that there's a case that was true in this particular general election, that the, the polls were so off that you would have been just about as good to just look at the 2016 election results and assume we were on track for a repeat. If you can't, and that's not quite true. I mean, the, the, you know, Biden will do better than Hillary Clinton did and you know, win the Midwestern states back. And then a final possibility is that the polls are so bad so as to be misleading. And I think there are cases of that too. I mean, Joe Biden's campaign was in Ohio and Iowa before the election. He's going to lose those states by like eight points. He, should have, he shouldn't have been anywhere near there. There were Democrats who donated hundreds of millions of dollars in total to races that were not competitive in the, in, in the Senate. Um, that 
actively in hurt some, Democrats. In some of those, in some of those cases, they should have known. In some of those cases, they should have known better. But there were polls from Quinnipiac University or yep. whatever, a nonpartisan, you know, academic research center that had a tied race in South, South Carolina. Carolina, and that's bad. That is misleading. Nate, we really, really appreciate you coming on, crossing the news opinion divide to share your insights. <laughs> yeah, um, thank you so much. And and hopefully the next time we have you on, it will be to talk about how brilliantly um, New York Times polling performed in some future election cycle. You know, I'm going to go off on a limb and say you won't have me on if the polls do that well. So I'm, I'm not, I might, <laughs> my, uh, I enjoyed this so much that my incentives here are very conflicting going forward. So remember that next time there's a polling miss. Uh-huh. That's that's we're, we're we're in the business of that kind of incentive blurring. Thanks for having me. Here at the argument, we want to hear everyone's perspective, and that includes you. Whether you're a longtime listener or a new one, we're asking you to fill out a survey about how you listen to this show and others at nytimes.com/backslash/theargumentsurvey. We want to keep improving, and we can't do that without hearing from you. Again, that's nytimes.com backslash the argument survey. And thank you in advance for your help. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And we're back. It's pretty safe to say that by the time you hear this podcast, Donald Trump will still not have conceded the 2020 race. His team continues to file legal challenges over ballot counting, while his fellow Republicans seem, without necessarily endorsing all his claims, to be humoring him for the moment. So what happens now? Well, our next guest has the closest thing to a crystal ball that we could find. Rosa Brooks is the co-founder of the Transition Integrity Project, which last summer organized a series of war games that tried to play out what could happen after this election. And in September, she published a prescient piece in the Washington Post headlined, Trump Could Refuse to Concede, in which she envisioned the blue shift of mail-in ballots, Trump's Twitter allegations of fake votes, and the post-election lawsuits over alleged fraud all of which has obviously come to pass. Rosa is also a professor at Georgetown Law School and formerly worked in the Departments of Defense and State. Rosa, welcome to The Argument. Thank you, Ross. It's great to be here. So we are relying on you to tell us, (laughs) since we're living inside at least one version of a war game or simulation, in this version as it's played out so far, um, Biden winning narrowly, seemingly, Trump refusing to concede, legal challenges ongoing. What happens next? 
I wish I had a crystal ball. I have something called a sarcastic eight ball, um, <laughs> but it's not super um, helpful because, you know, you shake it and it says things like, yeah, right, or you wish, um, or in your dreams instead of instead of um, giving Which me Which sounds <laughs> vaguely like what the president is saying to his aides when they approach him and suggest conceding the election. So No, I mean, and, and I should be clear, by the way, the Transition Integrity Project is, is, is not and was not an organization. It was just a series of uh, simulation exercises that, that we did. I organized them together with uh, Nils Gilman, um, uh, a historian and about a hundred different people participated over the series of, of four exercises we did. So the things that I talked about in that September Washington Post article you mentioned did not derive from my own fevered imagination. Um, although my fevered imagination is capable of coming up with all kinds of apocalyptic scenarios, um, they derived from doing these gaming exercises where we we took people who were experienced in both uh, Democratic and Republican presidential campaigns, White House staff, con- Congress, state-level office, and we put them on teams. We had a Trump team, a Biden team, a GOP elected officials team, and so on. And we we gave them starting scenarios. We weren't interested in the election. Um, we figured other people were thinking about that. So all of our scenarios essentially started at about four in the morning on election night. Um, you know, they started with, OK, here's how the electoral map looks. It's four in the morning. Biden won these states clearly. Trump won these states clearly. Here's what's not known. And then we said to the teams, take turns, go. What are you going to do now? This kind of gaming is actually, if anything, the purpose of this kind of game is both to it's push it's to push people to test their own assumptions. You know, so if you're sitting around and when we started planning these games was was a year ago now, more than a year ago. Um, you know, if you're sitting around saying, oh, don't be silly, of course Trump will concede if he loses. That's ridiculous because we have these magic guardrails of democracy that will keep us safe at the right moment. You know, this kind of exercise can push people to go, oh, wait a minute, you know, maybe there's nothing automatic about what happens. Um, But they're also a way to say, boy, how bad could things get and identify ways to try to mitigate those risks and make sure that the sort of dark scenarios that these exercises did in fact get to don't happen in real life. Now, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, um, either you could say that our we turned out to be more prophetic than we intended to be or that our risk mitigation efforts were not as successful as we hoped they would be because we do seem to be at a moment that several of our our scenario exercises got us to where despite the fact that we have what kind of seems like a pretty definitive Biden win, you know, it's really not that close. And yet even so, what we are seeing is uh, uh, Trump refusing to concede, a surprisingly high and depressingly high number of senior GOP officials saying, yeah, we don't concede, we're going to fight. Not only are we going to fight in court, but we're going to try to persuade state legislatures to overturn the popular vote because we don't trust it and consider not certifying slates of electors for Biden. Uh, We're seeing a massive right wing disinformation campaign, which seems to be having some real success, saying things like, no, 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 Biden didn't win in Pennsylvania and so forth. And and I've got to say that um, this is one of those situations where the fact that our exercises ended up being prophetic does not give me the slightest uh, satisfaction. In fact, it's it's really, really scary and depressing. So there was about a day and a half where it felt like 
oh, we got so frightened for nothing. And actually everything is sort of playing out somewhat normally. And then some of these nightmare scenarios (laughs) started unrolling. And so I guess my question is, when did you start to get really alarmed and what are your fears about what happens next? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of characterologically always really alarmed. I mean, I'm, I never get invited to parties because I'm always the person who's like, yeah, things are going to fall apart. Um, <laughs> you know, so um, even I, so that said, even for a paranoid, apocalyptically oriented person like me on, on Saturday when the network started calling the election for Biden, I thought, oh, my God, thank goodness we really dodged a bullet here um, for a while there, I, I did. I did. I, I had a really kind of unfamiliar emotion of, <laughs> <laughs> of calm and, and relief. And I thought, wow. So we got about 36 hours in there, right, of thinking, you know, either we were paranoid nuts or we did a great job preventing this. And then the bad stuff started to happen. I mean, we we all figured Trump wasn't going to concede right away. You know, that there was zero chance of that. And in fact, in fact, I always I pretty much thought all along Trump is never going to concede. It's just mm-hmm. not in his nature, you know. But I did think we're going to see people like Mitch McConnell say, you know, maybe maybe not immediately, but in a day or two, say, congratulations, President-elect Biden, and go to, to, go to Trump and say, Mr. President, I heart you, but you lost and, you know, better luck in 2024 or better luck with Trump TV or whatever your next venture is. And, you know, I'll sit down with you as we start calling the moving trucks. Um, and that did not happen. And that was ominous. You know, the sil- first the silence was initially ominous. Um, the and, and then things started getting even more ominous. Right. We started seeing um, the GOP filing all of these lawsuits all over the place in an effort to stop the vote counting, get get ballots invalidated, and so on, and we 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 did the exercises. Certainly, um, the the players playing Team Trump and GOP officials did precisely that in all of our exercises. Unsurprisingly, these litigation efforts have been failing, failing, failing all over the place because, you know, on in court, unlike even if you're with a sympathetic Republican judge in court, unlike on Facebook. You know, you have to state a legally cognizable claim and you have to make arguments and you have to have evidence. And they just don't. There's no evidence of widespread bo- voter fraud. But I think there's, you know, the, the purpose of this litigation is to create a narrative more than anything else to sort of say to the base and it's connected to all these disinformation efforts to say, oh, well, where there's smoke, there must be fire. They wouldn't be litigating if there wasn't some real issue you know, and people hear the litigation and then they miss the part about the cases getting dismissed for lack and of evidence. how worried are you about the states refusing to certify the actual vote? Because uh, that know, was part of your scenario also. It, it, it was. Uh, I, I, I don't know how worried to be. I mean, again, I, you know, I, I, in my glass half full moments, I think they're never going to get enough. You know, Biden won too many states. You know, it's not enough for them to get one state legislature to get wacky. And it would have to be getting wacky. It'd have to be legislature saying, despite the absence of any evidence, we are going to uh, attempt to subvert the popular will in the state um, and send an alternative slate of electors pledged to Trump. Could you could could they manage that maybe in one state? Maybe Uh, it's could they manage it in three or four, which is what they'd have to do? I think it would be really tough to do. Um, 
it's it's also crazy, needless to say, because as uh, as as you were just discussing with Nate, one of the phenomena that we saw in this election was that Trump did worse than down ticket Republicans. So some of those very same ballots that voted for Joe Biden, you know, that have checked the Biden box at the top, then checked the Republican geo, you know, the Republican House or Senate candidate box. So you're you're really playing with fire if you're trying to kind of invalidate those ballots. It just also just doesn't make sense, you know, that if the Democrats are engineering a massive conspiracy full of fake ballots, then, you know, why don't they sweep the House and the Senate too while they're at it? You know, what kind of conspiracy gives the presidency to Biden but takes away a bunch of House seats and leaves them without a Senate majority? That's it's it doesn't make sense. So so the but it, but it, but the theory it's, it's the theory the the theory there is that um, the the conspiracy theory there is that it's easy if you're mass producing fake ballots to just have them vote for president and not have not fill in all the rest of the votes. Um, just just <laughs> well, just maybe. just just so we're clear on what the <laughs> what the conspiracy what the, what the what the conspiracy theory. Well, look. So I I I mean I am very aware of what all the conspiracy theories are because I've been following this in conservative social media and including among, you know, people I'm friendly with over the last week or two. And I guess my my main disagreement with how you guys are describing what's happening is, you know, the idea that the legal motions being filed are there to further a deliberate disinformation campaign, I think gets the causality wrong. That may I think be right. W- that may be I think right. the way things work now in American politics, and this connects to the conversation we had in the last segment about collapsing trust in polling yeah. and every other institution, is that, yes, there are sort of cynical actors and grifters who fasten onto elections and sort of, you know, make make what they know to be false claims. But there's just a huge number of people who are invested in, you know, sort of narratives that emerge organically that are, that are, you know, conspiratorial, but are also just sort of based on the fact that anyone can go and look at voting numbers on the internet and find what they think are anomalies and turn it into a Twitter thread that, you know, then gets picked up in six other places and confirmation bias sets in. And I've spent the last, you know, week or so having arguments with, it, to an extent that I haven't before about sort of, you know, about conspiracy theories, um, sort of batting down people saying, oh, but Ross, didn't you see that the, you know, the number of voters in Wisconsin exceeded the number of registered right. voters? And isn't that evidence of fraud? And then you have to say, well, but actually Wisconsin has same day voter registration. So you've got the wrong denominator. But these are not people making things up. These are people yeah. who were thought Trump was going right, to win. But- we're surprised by the outcome. And so that then just just to just to finish my my brief here, you have a combination of a a, a big chunk of the country that is primed or predisposed to, you know, believe the worst about its opponents, joined to a president who you know, I always assumed Trump wasn't going to concede, at least in the first week. That has not surprised me in the slightest. And so what I think you're getting from Republican lawyers and from Mitch McConnell and from other people is not the worst case scenario of Republicans cooperating in a coup, but it's the very predictable scenario of Republicans saying, "Okay, well, we have Trump has the right to make these legal challenges and we're going to do recounts. And so we're going to wait to congratulate Joe Biden until those things, those things have passed. And so I guess 
predictably, I disagree with both of you about the scale of the alarm. I think liberals should still feel pretty comfortable about what Trump is doing. He's ranting on Twitter and his lawyers are filing, <laughs> you know, they're filing lawsuits that are just about Twitter rants. Not comfortable, but in the sense that like this is still within right. the right. range that's not you know, Bill Barr sends in sends in the National Guard to seize ballot boxes and like these right. kind of things that were circulating right. in, you know, in like serious magazines before the election. But, but Ross, you wrote on Twitter, and this is yes. inexplicable to me. Yes, that let's do it. Let's do it. You thought that Uh-oh. that Senate Republicans were behaving, I don't remember the word you used, but like responsibly, that they were rather than cynically cooperating with Trump, they were well, I don't remember the language you used, but you I sa- said a minority of Republicans are cynically adopting Trump's arguments, but most are trying to figure out how to do the right thing without ratifying his stab in the back narrative among voters who right now trust him more than them. So what I meant right. by but that. But they are ratifying that- his stab in the back narrative. They, I mean, that's what they're doing. They're ratifying his stab in the back narrative. They are kind of reifying the most paranoid impulses of their base. The right thing to do would be to say that these theories are baseless, that, you know, we wish it had gone a different way. But actually, no, these states are not going to nominate an alternate slate of electors, which is what you know, kind of Republican politicians are threatening to do and also would be trying to um, step in at a time when the president is decapitating the Pentagon, filling the top ranks with fanatical lunatics. They would try to both mitigate that and speak to the huge part of the country that sees what's going on and is absolutely terrified and should not have to endure being terrorized in this way by their own government. So I I don't totally disagree. And we we can get into this a bit more in the sense that I think and have always assumed that having Trump in charge during a presidential transition, let alone one with a pandemic raging, would create various disasters that were sort of independent of whether Trump actually tries to cling to power. But on the stab in the back narrative, you have long before Trump, you had a dynamic in the Republican Party dates back to the collapse of the Bush administration, where Republican voters don't trust their leaders to a scale that is has no parallel on the Democratic side. And it has produced a Republican Party that has been roiled by sort of insurgent waves that have helped make the party unmanageable and the country ungovernable. Um, I don't think you disagree with that. No, I don't disagree right? with that. So the, t- the Tea Party wave... Um, you know, led to this era of like debt ceiling brinksmanship under Obama. And then the next wave was Donald Trump and gave us Donald Trump, right? So if you are Mitch McConnell and you go out at a time when Trump, you know, still has the right to claim to ask for recounts, you know, he still has room to file lawsuits. And you say, folks, this election is over and Joe Biden is the next president. You are giving Trump and not just Trump, but like the Trump complex, You are giving them what they need to run a Trump version of the Tea Party in 2022 and to run either Trump himself or, you know, the Trumpiest figure imaginable, Don Jr., let's say, in 2024 and say, we could have litigated this election. We could have had recounts and Mitch McConnell shut it down because he's a rhino, traitor, deep state sellout cuck. You have to do something in this moment to talk to the people who I know who are like, you know, normal, normal people who are well, reading they're not stuff that on normal. the internet. 
They're, you know, I mean, they're more normal than any of us. I think there's a degree to which you are both right. I mean, I think in terms of the GOP leadership, you know, we 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 have some people who are like, for some people, this is calculated theater. And it's calculated theater precisely because of what you just said, Ross. They're thinking, okay, we know that the odds of actually overturning this election result are extraordinarily low. We're losing in court because we really don't have evidence of voter fraud. We can do these recounts, but we know that historically recounts do not, you know, maybe they change a couple hundred votes, but it's not going to be close enough to change the outcome. You know, we know that we're not going to realistically persuade enough state legislatures to send alternative slates uh, to the Electoral College. But it's real because our base trusts Trump more than they trust us. It's really important that we demonstrate both to Trump, who's like a giant toddler, look how hard we tried, we're fighting for you all the way, and that we able that we're able to go back to our constituencies and say, we fought for you, we fought for you, we fought for you, vote for me in 2022 or 2024. I absolutely anticipate. Right, but we- I just want to quickly. Uh-huh. I mean, I want to. I want. I want you to finish what you're going to say, but I just want to quickly interject that that's not them trying to do the right thing. No, they're being self-protective. Yeah, they're being they're being no, no, self-protective. But, see, but this is this is I mean, this is like, you know, definitions of the right thing. But <laughs> the the most important thing for American politics going forward, not not the only important thing, but one of the most important things is that we not have a replay of the Trump experience. Right. And, and I, I think mean, we are getting and, set and up you, for exactly that. But you can't you can't you, you have to make choices in this moment that that have the possibility of a replay in mind. What McConnell and other Republican senators and some governors are doing, what seems to me, again, pending what happens in a week or 10 days, to be a reasonable attempt to not set up Trump for, you know, being the man who was betrayed by his party, which is what yeah. maybe I'm too worried about yeah. that for the future. But I, I think that that I think that that is, you know, I don't know. I mean, when you look at people like Mike Pompeo saying, of course, there will be a peaceful transfer of power to a second Trump administration, you know, that 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 the appropriate responsible note of caution is to say, you know, look, I would congratulate Joe Biden, but the president feels very strongly that he wants to see these recounts play out. Um, you know, it's very likely that that this won't change anything, but, you know, we're going to wait and see what happens and we're going to hope for the best. And if indeed it plays out that Biden is the winner, as looks likely, we will congratulate him, but we want to, you know, that, okay, fine, you know, but this stuff, this, this stuff about, um, this stuff about, you know, like Pompeo's comments are just, are just kind of shocking, frankly. To pull us back to, to scenarios, I guess, what is the thing that, in your view, Rosa, would take this from a situation of sort of alarm to actual crisis? I think two things would really alarm me. One one is if we started seeing a much more open and concerted effort to say to state legislatures, hey, the popular vote is fake, overturn it. And if we started seeing state legislatures more than one respond to that, that would worry me very, very, very much. Um, the other thing that would really scare me um, you know, one of the things that happened in a lot of our exercises is that in the scenarios in which in which Trump was refusing to acknowledge a Biden win, um, the lots of protesters turned out in the streets basically saying, Trump, you got to go, you lost. Um, and although Biden was saying peaceful, 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 there was violence, we will say. 
Um, and, you know, sometimes it was provocateurs, sometimes it was armed counter protesters turning up. And in several of our scenarios, um, you know, the the Republicans in our scenarios, as the Biden team would say, well, we're going to urge people to go out peacefully and, you know, demonstrate the popular will. Some of our, our Republican participants were like, "You, that's playing right into Trump's hands. That's exactly what he wants, because he wants there to be violence. He wants there to be an excuse to use coercive force. The darkest and most paranoid vision um, that we could have here. Uh, and this is one that the firing of Secretary of Defense Esper plays right into, et cetera, um, is that Trump is prepping for a scenario in which he is able to use coercive force, including active duty military, to, quote unquote, restore order or one of the one of the bases for invoking the Insurrection Act to use active duty military is is one of the legal bases is actually to, quote, protect federal property. But the claim would be, you know, that the places where these ballots are being countered or recounts being done are federal property. We have to send in troops to protect them. Uh, Esper, Esper's head was clearly on the chopping block ever since he publicly said after Lafayette Square um, invoking the Insurrection Act would be a very bad idea. Using active military troops in the United States would be a very bad idea. I'm opposed to that. The firing of Esper is ominous. But but if we start seeing signs that that's more than just a sort of Trump lashing out at people who were insufficiently obsequious and that that's actually attempting to clear the way for. But wait, can I just say one thing? Because yeah. isn't one sign of that, and I don't think we know exactly what it means, is that it wasn't just Esper, right? right. They've like, they've decapitated a lot of the leadership of the Pentagon and put in these truly, these people who are truly nuts, right? The head of the policy shop at the Pentagon is this guy, Anthony Tata. Is it Tata? Is that how you pronounce yeah, it? Yeah, he's truly okay. nuts. Yes. Right. This is somebody who tweeted, who's called Barack Obama a terrorist yes. leader, who yes. has tweeted absolutely lurid fantasies yes. about the execution Tata of former CIA nice. chief um, John Brennan. And right. They've put all of these crazy well, loyalists every, at very high levels. Well, not all of them are are nuts. Right. I mean, I don't think we have any reason to think that Chris Miller is nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I don't think we. The guy Who is, is for a, listeners the act now the acting the acting secretary, secretary defense. of defense? But the biggest problem with with these guys and it's Chris Miller um, uh, is I think in his mid fifties, but he is a recently you know retired five or six years ago. But but going in the space of a few months from deputy assistant secretary level to the head of the NCTC to secretary of defense is is you know I, I don't know I don't know that. I have no reason. In fact, I, I I know people who know him who say he's a decent guy, but but I think when you put people who are extremely inexperienced into those positions, you're not doing it because you're thinking to yourself, "Whoa, you know, I cannot wait to rely on their sage advice." You're doing it clearly because you're thinking, "I want people who I can push around." But the reporting we have so far, which of course could be wrong, but suggests that. The, the thing that Trump wants out of the national security establishment in the next two months is, one, a full withdrawal from Afghanistan, which Esper and others had resisted, and two, a bunch of declassification of Russia's material. Well, that wouldn't which be... He, that would which be, he, which that would in be order a, to prove but, right, to Michelle once and for all... That's why Gina Haspel right. is expected to be the head of the CIA, to be one of the next to go. You know, so I, I certainly think we're seeing a purge across agencies... But I guess to, to to me, you know, again, I'll have to 
you know, when when we when we have when we have the dire scenarios, I'll have to eat my words. But to me, this seems like a repeat of the the sort of pattern of the whole Trump presidency, yes, right. where you, you have this, mad. where the, the well, well, but where you have this anxiety, you you have this anxiety among liberals about sort of his authoritarian power, but the actual danger is from total incompetence, having people who don't know what they're doing in high offices over a multi-month period. And I guess on that front, which is what I'm I'm most worried about, I mean, Rosa, like, s- supposing that the worst case scenarios don't come to pass and in, you know, two weeks, Republicans are all calling Biden the president-elect, but Trump just, you know, the Trump White House just doesn't cooperate with the transition. Like, what do you see as the danger points there, where it's clear that Biden is going to become president in January, right. but nothing is happening, no collaboration yeah. is happening to yeah. prepare no, for and, that? No, and, and I actually, I, I agree with you, Ross. I think that that darkest scenario is not super likely. I, I think it's, it's, um, likely enough that it makes me very anxious in the right. sense that... I mean, the, it, it should be... The fact that it's non-zero yeah, that's is right. extraordinarily no, that, that's alarming. Right. I mean, this is, this is, and this is the metaphor that my, my friend Nils Gilman, uh, who organized these exercises with me, always uses. You know, if I said to you, if I said to you there's a 99% chance something won't happen, you, you, you'd think, oh, good, well, then let's not worry about it. But on the other hand, if I said to you, there is a there is a one in a hundred chance that within the next 10 minutes, you know, a guy with a machete is going to walk into your house and start slashing away, uh, you'd probably decide that at a minimum you're going to lock your doors and maybe you're going to leave your house. But Ross, your question about the transition you know what? What what is supposed to happen? Of course, is we get these so-called landing teams that will, you know, appointees by Biden who will go into the agencies and start, you know, just start kind of doing due diligence and saying, "Hey, what's going on? What are the issues? Where are the vacancies? What's working? What's not? Can we see the memos? You know, where do things stand on X and Y?" And just kind of prepare so that when when Biden is inaugurated and Biden appointees come in. You know, they're not sort of starting completely from scratch. They have some sense. There's some sense of continuity. Um, They're also supposed to be getting classified intelligence briefings so they know what's going on in the rest of the world. Um, They're supposed to be getting resources for to to pay staff to have office space. And at the moment, um, they are not getting most of those things. And, And in fact, agency employees have been instructed not to cooperate with the transition teams. They've literally been instructed, you know, you can't talk to them. And so the best case scenario, it's a mess and it's dangerous. And every U.S. adversary thinks to themselves, hey, gee, this would be a really good moment to do something that in normal circumstances I know the United States would object to, but they're too distracted and confused right now. So I think I can get away with it. That's best case. Worst case, you know, worst case is that our paranoia has been directed in the wrong place. It's not a power grab by Trump domestically uh, hoping to stay in the office. Worst case, um, these these uh, purges, et cetera, at the Defense Department, potential purges in other parts of the national security establishment are designed to enable various forms of mischief involving Iran, involving the Middle East, involving potentially cutting deals that personally enrich Trump cronies, et cetera. And the goal is to get out of the way people who would say, oh, that's a really bad idea, right? I will say that my my worries right now focus around the point, you know, at some point, 10 to 20 days from now, when 
I suspect liberal fears that Trump is going to pull off a coup will finally evaporate, but what will replace them is the question of like tra- of transition yeah. cooperation. But on that note, contemplating you know wars, wars, and other other catastrophes abroad. Um, we want a recommendation for listeners who um, are going to live through the Trump to Biden transition and want to know, um, you know, what what you are enjoying in your life during this trying time. Here's my recommendation to everyone. Um, uh, those listeners can't see us, but I'm not sitting at a desk. I'm sitting in a recliner with my feet <laughs> up. And in a world in which we all have to do endless Zooms and things like that now, I've always been somebody who who wrote with sitting on the sofa with my feet on the coffee table on the laptop on my lap, which is where laptops are supposed to be, everybody. Um, and I hated working at a desk. And then when the pandemic came along and I had to do all these Zooms, I started out thinking, oh, God, now I've got to be at a desk because I've got to have my computer at the right height and all this kind of nonsense. And then at a certain point, I thought, no, I don't. So my recommendation to everybody is if you've, you know, if you've got to read stuff on your computer, if you've got to watch TV, if you've got to do Zooms, you might as well recline. (laughs) Well, we appreciate you gracing us with that wisdom. Rosa Brooks, thanks so much for coming. Yeah, thank you so much. (laughs) My pleasure. And that's our show for the week. Thank you so much for listening. The Argument is, as always, a production of the New York Times Opinion Section. Our team includes Alison Bruzek, Vishaka Darba, Elisa Gutierrez, Phoebe Lett, Isaac Jones, Paula Schumann, Kate Sinclair, and Kathy Too. Special thanks to Corey Schreppel. Next week, assuming that none of Rosa's absolute worst-case scenarios come to pass, we'll be starting a series arguing about the first hundred days of the Biden administration. We'll talk to politicians, analysts, and familiar faces and voices from opinion about what Biden's priorities might be and how both Democrats and Republicans might adapt to a new presidency. We'll see you then. Beautiful. Ah, Okay. NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you. Guided by plant professionals, dig into botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.